Up to this point in Genesis, in the life of Abraham, we've seen several things. And we've seen good sides and bad sides of, uh, of Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, we saw the call of God come to Abram for the first time, calling him to leave the land that he had come to know as, as his own there in Haran to move to the land of Canaan, where he had no family. He had no, uh, no geographical boundaries for himself to rest in, to just go and to trust God, and that God, as Abram would obey, would bless Abram with land and offspring, and that the entirety of the world would be blessed through him. We saw Abram in the first part of Genesis 12 follow God faithfully, but then in the second half of Genesis 12 do a ridiculous thing in telling the Pharaoh of Egypt that his wife was only his sister and uh, all the mess that happened there. But then in Genesis 13 and 14, we saw the good side of Abram again, where Abram and Lot come together. They look at the land. They realize between the two of them, Abram and his nephew Lot, uh, they have so many resources and, and uh, livestock and other things that the land that they're currently in can't support them. And so they, they need to separate. And so we see there Abram uh, generously looking out at all the land and saying to Lot, Lot, take whatever bit of it you want and I'll just go the other direction. I trust what the Lord has given to me. And we see God blessing Abram uh, not not just with continued land and, and uh, the beginning of the, the, the fruitfulness of the promise of land there in Genesis 13, but also he protects Abram as Abram goes into battle against some Mesopotamian kings to rescue his, his knuckleheaded nephew Lot from uh, those uh, uh, Mesopotamian kings who had taken him captive. In chapter 15, as we saw last week, God reestablishes this promise of land, offspring, blessing to Abram, as he makes a covenant there with Abram. God walking between, as we saw last week, the pieces of the covenant, those severed halves of those animals that were slaughtered for the, the covenant uh, uh, ritual. God himself passing through the pieces saying, I will do this, Abram. I will make my promise come to fruition. I will give you land. I will give you offspring. I will bless the world through you. Now this week we turn to Genesis chapter 16 through chapter 18 verse 15 to see kind of the flip side of Abram yet again where he does something that demonstrates kind of his faithlessness. In chapter 16 we'll see Abram and his wife Sarai try to help God along in his promise. And God in the course of these two and a half chapters will demonstrate to both Abram and Sarai both that he's going to do what he's going to do uh, without their help. God will fulfill his promises without Abram's help, without Sarai's help. And God will fulfill his promises even to us without your help or without mine. I want us to glean from this text this morning that whatever situation of life that you are in, the all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present, all-powerful God is able to do the impossible with or without your help. But most especially without it. Knowing who God is, that he is all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present, all-powerful. Knowing what God is capable of this morning should cause us then to rest in him and to trust in his timing. We're going to cover a lot of uh, ground today in, in Scripture. And so open your Bibles to Genesis 16 and keep them open. We're going to keep going back to it. Uh, back to the text this morning as we work our way through. But let's uh, read Genesis 16 this morning. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word. 
the author of Genesis, uh, most likely Moses, writing during that wilderness wandering period, writing down this history of God's creation of people and of the people Israel for the Israelites, continues in Genesis 16, saying, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Remember, the promise is for children, but now she still has borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai, uh, Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord, may he bless us as we read and study this morning. You may be seated. Remember, the overarching theme of our text this morning is that God is going to fulfill his promises with or without the the help of Abram or Sarai. And we see that when Abram and Sarai here in chapter 16 tried to help God, it doesn't go very well. The overarching theme of God fulfilling his promises is where we're headed this morning. We're going to see several things about God that that apply even to our own lives along the way. Here in chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, we find that God is present in the midst of pain. God is present in pain. The pain that is present here in Genesis 16 begins with Sarai's plan. Her plan to help God in fulfilling his promises. God hasn't brought them a son yet. She hasn't been able to become pregnant by Abram yet and, and, and to bear him a son. And so she comes up with a plan. Verse 16 of this chapter tells us that it's been 10 years since Abram settled in Canaan. We know he settled in Canaan when he was 75. And here at the end of uh, chapter 16, he's 85, 86 years old and still no children. The promise of God for offspring, for, for a multitude of nations that would come from Abram is 10 years still in the making and, and still no, no promised child. So verses 1 and 2 tell us about Sarai's plan. Sarai's plan to have a child by surrogacy of sorts. 
Uh, now, we, uh, in, the ancient, uh, in ancient days, uh, surrogacy was not uh, possible by the, the means that we have today. And so what often would happen, it was not uncommon for a wife who could not bear children to give to her husband uh, one of her servants, as, as a, as not really as a wife, but as a surrogate mother. And the child that would be born to the servant would essentially be the master and mistress's uh, child together. So Sarai comes up with this plan. Everybody else does this when they can't have children. So Abram, here's, here's, my, here's my plan for you. God, uh, we, we, we trust your promise, but we're just going to help you out a little bit here. Verse 3 tells us that Abram goes along with the plan. Brilliant man. Brilliant decision. There are intentional... That was intentionally sarcastic. There are... Intentional parallels in Genesis 16 to what Abram and Sarai do to what we see in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve and Adam eat the fruit and, and, and uh, sin against God and fall. In Genesis 3, we see in order these phrases. The woman said, the man listened, she took and gave to her husband. In Genesis 16, we see the same thing. Sarai said to Abram, the, the man listened, Abram listened to his wife. Sarai took her servant and gave her to her husband. We are meant to see the depth of sin that is happening here in Genesis 16 in comparison to Genesis chapter 3. What Abram and Sarai are doing is not a good thing. Verses 4 through 6 tell us that the plan is successful. Hagar conceives through her relationship there with Abram, but even in her conception, there are unintended and unexpected consequences. Suddenly, now that Hagar, the, the servant of Sarai, has conceived and become pregnant, she, she now looks on Sarai with contempt. I'm pregnant and you're not. You can't tell me what to do. You gave me as, as a wife to this man. Who, who do you think you are as my mistress telling me what to do here? And so there's immediately friction between the relationship, uh, uh, in the re- relationship between Hagar and Sarai. But also that conflict leads to conflict in the relationship between Abram and Sarai too. Sarai goes to Abram and says, may the wrong done to me be against you. May the Lord judge between me and you. But it was her idea. <laughs> Abram's not off the hook either. Knucklehead went along with it. You see, we see the consequences of this plan, which is born, in, born out of a sinful desire to help God to fulfill his promises. And we see the consequences of it. And we look at it and we go, duh, Sarai, duh, Abram. What did you think would happen? In all of this, we see, we find that the consequences of our sin always affect others. The consequences of sin always affect others. The, the sinful act of, of Sarai taking her servant and, and giving her to Abram as sort of a second wife to have a child by surrogacy is not part of God's plan for marriage or for childbearing. And it's certainly not part of the promise that God has given to Abram for a, a, a child of his own. Sins always have consequences that go beyond our own lives. It doesn't seem that Sarai or Abram uh, either are, are looking to see how this might go badly. And yet the whole thing blows up in their face. Hagar is now brought into, and her whole life is affected by their sin and the consequences of it. The son that she will bear, Ishmael, his whole life will be affected by the sin of Sarai and Abram here in Genesis 16. The consequences of our sin always, always, always affect others. 
It is true, as David says in Psalm 51, that it is ultimately against God that we have sinned. He is the ultimate uh, uh, victim, the ultimate one being offended when we sin. And it is before him that we stand guilty for our sin. But friends, we need not look far to see how the sins of mankind affect and damage those around us. Know this this morning, your sin never stops where you think it will. It always affects more people than you can plan for. And sin never accomplishes God's perfect will. So hear and heed this warning this morning. If you are plotting sinful actions in your mind today, stop. Repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Because sin always affects others. God is present in pain, the pain that Sarai's plan causes. And he's, he's present especially in the pain that Hagar experiences. We oftentimes want to throw Hagar under the bus uh, in, in Genesis 16 as the, as the sort of the sneaky mistress who stole the heart of Sarai's husband. But that's not how it happens at all. Sarai or Hagar is, uh, is a servant in the house of Abram. She is uh, at the beck and call of Sarai and Abram to do whatever they tell her to do. She is in a vulnerable position as a servant. We see this in verse 6 as Abram allows Sarai to treat Hagar however she, want, however she wants to. He says, behold, your servant is in your hand. Do whatever you want with her. How much does Abram really care about, about Hagar in this passage? In verses 7 through 12, we, we find Hagar uh, running away. She, she flees from Sarai and, and from the house of Abram. And there, as she is just sort of wandering out in the wilderness all on her own, she's visited by the Lord though she does not immediately recognize or realize that it's the Lord there speaking to her. When the Lord speaks to her, he says to her three things. In verse 9, return to your mistress, submit to her. Verse 10, he gives the promise to Hagar that even though she has been brought into the, the pain uh, of the effects of Sarai and, Hagar's, or Sarai and Abram's sin, he says to her in verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring. In verse 11, you shall call his name Ishmael which means literally the Lord hears. Verses 13 and 14 are, are helpful to us as Hagar recognizes that it is the Lord himself who has appeared to her and, who has, uh, and she blesses him for being a God of seeing, as the text says. God sees me. God hears me in my pain. I cannot help but in reading Genesis 16, think about Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, as we're introduced to the, to the plight of the Israelites, of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. And we read in Exodus 2, verses 23 and 25, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And as verse 24 says, And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God sees, God hears, and God is near to those who have been hurt by others' sin. God sees and hears and is near to those who have been the victim of other people's wickedness. It may be that you have been the victim of someone else's sin. Maybe, maybe it was a, a wicked act that was perpetrated against you directly. Or, or maybe you have been wrapped up in the horrible consequences of another person's evil actions. It's often our first reaction is those who have been hurt to ask, God, where were you? 
Why didn't you, why didn't you stop this from happening? Why didn't you protect me from being hurt by these people who intended to sin against me? Know from this text today and from how God interacts with Hagar in the wilderness that irrespective of what you have been through, however horrible it might be, however tragic and traumatic the sins against you may have been, know this today, God hears you. God sees you. God is near to you. Know that his desire is to be even more than near to you, but to make his own home in your heart as you trust in Christ, his son, who gave his life to forgive your sins. God is not just near to Hagar in the desert and the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. God is near to you today. So friend, if you are hurting because of someone else's sin against you, if you've been wrapped up in the consequences of of other person's evil actions and you don't know where to go or where to turn to or whom to look to for help, know this, God sees you. He's, he, he hears you and he is near to you today. Amen. God is present in pain, we see in chapter 16. In chapter 17, we see also that God reminds those who forget. God reminds those who forget. Chapter 17 begins this way. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And he said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring forever. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God reminds those who forget. In verses 1 and and 2 and following, we find that God, in reminding Abram, who has a tendency to forget, God restates his character. He reminds Abram who he is. Verses 1 and 2, we find there that it's been 13 years since uh, chapter 16, verse 16. Between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, 13 years have passed. Abram was 86 years old at the end of 16, 99 years old at the beginning of chapter 17. And here, 13 years later, the Lord appears to Abram to remind him again of the promise that he made to him in Genesis 12 and reaffirmed by covenant in Genesis 15. Here the Lord names himself God Almighty. He is El Shaddai, who himself is holy and requires those in relationship with him to be holy as well. He says to Abram, he says, walk before me and be blameless. But then this is who God has always been, isn't it? God has always been God Almighty, El Shaddai, who who is himself holy and requires uh, those that he is in relationship to be, uh, those with whom he is in relationship to be holy as well. This is who God is and is who God will continue to be. In Exodus chapter 19, as God is preparing to give the law to Israel after they have been brought safely out of Egypt, he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Leviticus 11, verse 44, God says, I am, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 says to those listening, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God reminds Abram of who he is. He is holy. God is blameless. He is perfect. He is unchanging. So dear friend, rest in the truth that God never changes. God always has been holy. God always has been perfect. God always has been almighty. He's reminding Abram of these things. So friend, rest in the truth that God never changes. I'm so grateful that God is holy and perfect and that he alone is God. I'm because I am prone to change my mind and my preferences minute by minute. Ask anybody in our church who served on a committee with me. If I were God, I would be a horrible deity. No one would worship me and rightfully so because they would never know how or why I should be worshiped. The same is true of you. You would be a terrible God. You are prone to change and waver and waffle and flip-flop, but not God. God is not prone to change. God is not prone to wavering. God is not prone to waffling. He is always holy. He is always just. He is always mighty to save. So friend, anchor your life as Abraham did to this immutable, unchanging, never changing God. Rest in the truth that God never changes. God reminds those who forget. He reminds us of of his character. He also goes through the trouble of restating his promise. We saw that in verses 4 through 8. Where God repeats his promise of offspring to Abraham. Real children from his own marriage. That's the promise. And this time he puts the promise in terms of a covenant. Like what we saw in Genesis chapter 15. Now in Genesis 17 we'll find uh, as you read along. That this is the covenant in verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised as a sign of a covenant, as a reminder of the covenant God is making. Not just Abram and his sons, but every male that lives in his household for every generation. Some say that the covenant God is making here in chapter 17, this covenant uh, uh, signified by circumcision, is a separate covenant from what we read in Genesis chapter 15 last week. I I think, though, that uh, this covenant that God is making in 17 is just a reaffirmation of the covenant that God made in chapter 15. I prefer to view uh, chapter 15 and chapter 17 as, as sort of twin halves of the same covenant, if you will. This is just another affirmation of the promises of Genesis 12 of land and offspring and blessing for generations to come. In either case, whether you see Genesis 15 and 17 as as two parts of one covenant or as two separate covenants, this much is true. God is going to do what he promised he would do without any help from Abram. Abram and Sarai have already tried to help God fulfill his promise. And God is saying, no, I promised you I'd give you a son from Your own body, your own marriage, I'm going to do it. He restates his promise. Friends, in seeing God restating his promise to Abram, we can take courage this morning in knowing that God is faithful. We can take courage in knowing God is faithful. The great British Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, In the same way that the sun never grows weary of shining, nor a stream of flowing, it is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go immediately to his throne and say, do as you promised. Take courage, Christian. Have hope. 
because it is in God's very nature. No, it is God's very nature to keep his promise to Abraham, a promise that bears fruit in Jesus of Nazareth, who every promise of God finds their yes and amen in. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, who gives in exchange for our faith in him a righteousness not our own, promised from God with eternal life to go with it. Take courage in knowing God is faithful. If God has promised that he would save us by faith in his son, he will do it. Claim that promise. Trust in Jesus. Take courage in knowing God is faithful. God reminds his people by restating his character, by restating his promise. And God reminds those who are so often prone to forget by giving uh, meaningful reminders. By giving meaningful reminders. There are two reminders that God gives to Abram and Sarai in this passage. The first, very simply, is new names. We know that in the, New, the Old Testament, names bear a lot of meaning. A person's name given to them when they're born uh, was intended by their parents to say much about the kind of person that they would grow up to be. Or, or the kind of God, the, the, the way that God had, had already proven his faithfulness to them. Right? Hagar is to name her son Ishmael, God who hears, because God heard her crying in the wilderness. God gives new names to Abram and Sarai. In verse 5, he changes Abram's name, which means great father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And in verse 15, he changes Sarai's name, which means princess, to Sarah, which also means princess. But because kings will come from her, God says. God gives meaningful reminders uh, in in the sense of giving new names, but he also gives a covenant sign. Something to hold on to, something to look to uh, as a visual reminder of God's faithfulness. The covenant sign that, that he gives in chapter 17 is the covenant sign of circumcision. We see after God reminds Abraham of his promise, he gives Abraham this tangible reminder of that promise. And just as God puts the rainbow in the sky in Genesis 9 as a reminder of his promise never to destroy the earth by flood, so also does he institute with Abraham and all the males of Abraham's house the sign of circumcision. Now, without being gross or too graphic or too explicit, it is important for us to see, incredibly important for us to see, that the sign of the covenant, this reminder of the promise that God gives to Abraham, is directly related to the nature of the promise. I'll say that one more time, but I won't say it any differently. We need to see that the sign of the covenant of circumcision is, is, uh, is directly related to the nature of the promise. Namely, the biological child of Abraham's marriage with Sarah. God will fulfill his promise only that way. In verse 17, we read this. After God says this and gives the name change to Sarai, Genesis seventeen seventeen. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Abram, after hearing this promise of God, having this promise restated and reaffirmed and and given a new sign to remind him of the promise, he falls on his face, he questions God, and he laughs at the prospect of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a child. All the same, God does not remove or change the promise, does he? 
Instead, he says that he will even extend this covenant. I'll do you one better, Abram. I'm not just going to, I'm not, I'm not just going to make this covenant with you. I'm going to make it also with your son and with your grandson who will come through your uh, marriage with your wife, Sarah. I will extend my covenant, my promise of innumerable offspring and blessing to your son, to your grandson, to your great grandson for generations and generations. God reminds people who forget by restating his character and by restating his promises and by giving covenant signs. So, friend, this morning, remind yourself to remember what God has done. Remind yourself to remember what God has done. As Christians, we have two visible and enduring reminders of God's work in our lives and on our behalf. We have two ways of regularly bringing to our remembrance God's faithfulness to us. The first of these two signs is the ordinance known as baptism. In baptism, the one who has placed faith in Jesus Christ makes that decision public, committing himself or herself in the eyes of God and to the, the, uh, the church, to Christ and to his body. Christian, in times of doubt or moments of despair, feeling as though God is unable to help you, God is unable to save you, God is unable to do what is impossible for you, look on your faith in Christ and the visible reminder of your baptism to remember the miracle of salvation, that God works in the hearts of all of those who believe him. Baptism is a beautiful sign of God's faithfulness. The second reminder that we have is the second ordinance that we know is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a meager memorial meal of bread and wine that specifically reminds us of Christ's body and blood, which were broken and spilled out to purchase our freedom from sin. This small meal taken together by gathered believers is a corporate confession of God's great gospel work. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a declaration to ourselves of the continued power of the gospel to keep saving lost men and women until Christ returns. Christian, remind yourself to remember what God has done. If you've placed faith in Christ but never been baptized publicly... Do not rob yourself of this blessed reminder of your union to Christ and your love for his church. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized in obedience to him, identifying publicly with both God and his people, the church, do so. Be committed to be baptized. Come talk to me uh, during our time of response this morning and say, Pastor, I've trusted Christ. I did it many years ago, but I've never been baptized. I'd like to be baptized, show my obedience to God and my my love for his church, my commitment to his people. Do not rob yourself of this wonderful reminder of your union to Christ and to his people. And if you're a member, especially if you're a member of our church, of First West, and you have a habit of missing the Lord's Supper as we take it together, begin afresh tonight as we worship together and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes by eating and sipping his memorial meal. Tonight, we're going to visibly remind ourselves of God's grace, of his power, of his miraculous work in bringing us from death to life by faith in Jesus, his son, who gave his life for our sins. Why would we ever rob ourselves of the blessing of remembering what God has done, of remembering his faithfulness? Let us remind ourselves to remember what God has done, even maybe especially without our help. God is present in pain, chapter 16 tells us. God reminds those who forget, as we see in Genesis chapter 17. And in Genesis chapter 18, we find that God does the impossible. 
Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, go this way. The Lord appeared to him, appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to uh, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abram went, uh, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three say as a fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Abraham said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. (laughs) Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, teaches that God does the impossible. God does the impossible in that he knows the secret thoughts of the heart. Now, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18 are very interesting. Again, the Lord appears in physical form to Abraham like he did to Hagar in the wilderness. And like Hagar, Abraham seems not to recognize who it is at first. These appearances of, of the Lord, the personal name for God, Yahweh, is used here. The appearances of the Lord in personal form have often been thought throughout the Old Testament to be what are called Christophanies, uh, appearances of the eternal Son of God prior to his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. In the presence of this divine visitor, Abraham pulls out all the stops to prepare a wonderful meal for the Lord and for his attendants, who are likely two angelic beings. We should see, I think, here some resemblance to the luxurious way that Melchizedek received Abraham back in Genesis chapter 14. This is what good and generous hosts do for their visitors. Abraham is a generous man wanting to bless those who are coming to bless him. In verses 9 through 15, here we find uh, that the Lord's visit is really less for Abraham and more for Sarah. Though she is inside the tent, out of sight, the whole conversation between the Lord and Abraham is really for her sake. In verse 11, uh, we, we find the scripture telling us not only was Sarah previously barren, but that she is now even past the age and physical capacity for childbearing. She had already finished menopause. Verse 12 tells us that Sarah laughed to herself. Abraham, remember back in 17, when God uh, uh, revisits his covenant with him, falls down on his face and laughs out loud. But Sarah, inside the tent, out of sight of Abraham and these visitors, laughs to herself silently, thinking within her, after I'm worn out and the Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Verse 13 shows us that the Lord knows that she laughed and the Lord kindly rebukes her. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, remember, still outside the tent, 
Why did Sarah, your wife, inside the tent, who I can't see or hear, why did she laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? God can do the impossible. He shows us that. He knows the hidden thoughts of our hearts. Friend, this morning, rejoice in knowing that there is nothing that surprises God. Rejoice in knowing there's nothing that surprises Him. Children, those of you who have parents, maybe students, have you ever confessed a disobedience to your parents that in your heart you knew would surprise them and crush their soul, only to find out that in your confession they already knew? Not only were your parents not crushed, but they were ready to forgive you and to help you to move forward in in repentance and, and following Christ more faithfully. Children, God is like this, but infinitely so. There is nothing that can be hidden from him. There is nothing that surprises him. There is nothing he is not aware of. Go to him. He already knows. Parents, can you imagine being constantly bombarded with confessions of sin from your children that you knew nothing about? How heavy and constantly depressing that would be. Just one disastrous surprise would be enough to crush our pithy little hearts. My dear little angel is a horrible sinner. Whatever shall I do? But friends, not so with God. Our deepest sins do not dissuade his love to us in Christ. Our most horrid secrets are already known by him. All our doubts, all our distresses are already in his mind. And he is ready and capable to receive our confession, to aid our repentance, to answer our questions and our wonderments without blinking, without flinching, without even giving the slightest pause of response to our confession to him. So rejoice, dear friend, in knowing, knowing God who knows all. Rejoice in knowing that there's nothing that surprises him. And so run to his loving arms that he might hear all, forgive all, provide all strength for your walk in holiness in Christ Jesus, because nothing surprises him. God shows that he can do the impossible and that he knows the secret hearts of, of everyone, especially as illustrated in the life of Sarah here. But also in saying very explicitly, there is nothing too difficult for him. We've said that this, this whole passage today, 16, chapter 16 through the first half of 18, is all about God doing His, fulfilling His promises without the help of anyone. God demonstrates for us here that there is nothing too difficult for Him. Look again at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 18. The Lord says to Abraham and, and through him to Sarah, Is anything too hard? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I I didn't laugh. I didn't question. For she was afraid. He said, no, but she did laugh. And there's still nothing too impossible for me. Is there anything too hard? Is there anything too wonderful? Is there anything too fantastical or out of reach that the Lord cannot do? 
What an awesome reminder to us from the mouth of the Lord himself that there is nothing that he cannot accomplish. There is no, no promise he has made that he is incapable of fulfilling. There, there, there is no hope that he has given that, that he is incapable of, 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 fulfill, of fulfilling, of bringing to fruition. There is nothing that our God cannot do. Nothing too hard, nothing too far out of our imagination. Nothing too good for us and for his glory that will ever hold him back. God and all his powerful, all knowing rulership of the universe has waited in the life of Abraham and Sarah until it is not merely unlikely for them to have children, but he waits until it is impossible. And all this he does to demonstrate to them and to we who benefit from reading scripture today, that there is nothing too difficult, nothing too impossible, nothing too wonderful for him to do. Oh, beloved Christian, knowing there's nothing impossible for God, Learn patience. Learn patience by trusting in the sovereign God's timing. He will do what he will do without your help or mine. Learn patience by trusting in his timing. So many times in my life, I've been tempted in the middle of circumstances and situations that I don't uh, understand been tempted to ask, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand. Where is all of this headed? I can't see far enough in front of me. I, I, I don't know what's going on. I know this morning from personal experience and relationship with many of you that many of you have endured much harder circumstances in life than I have. Some of you have in, endured unimaginable suffering at the hands of others, asking God, what are you doing? Some of you have, have been in spaces in between in life, maybe between jobs, maybe between relationships, maybe in the midst of a broken relationship, asking, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why is this happening to me? We've all asked this question. We've all been in this place in life. We've all been in a similar way, uh, in the same place that Abraham and Sarah have been. Too old for anything good to happen. So out of our own strength that nothing, none of God's promises seem to be able to have fruition in our life. That there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And we ask God, where are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? Listen, I don't always know what God is up to. I don't. And neither do you, let's be honest. Anyone who says, I know exactly what God is doing, is probably the kind of person you may want to run the other direction from. We don't always know what God is doing. And in times of suffering, that's incredibly hard to, to, to grapple with. We want to know what he's doing. We don't always know what, we do, what he's doing, but we do always know that he's good. We do always know that he's sovereign. He's in control. We do always know that he sees and knows and hears and is all powerful and is all holy. How much more slowly would our hearts beat, dear friends? How much more deeply could we breathe and get up to face the day if in the midst of difficulty and suffering, we, we learn to stop asking the question, God, what are you doing? And change that question to a declaration saying, God, even if I don't, you know what you're doing. Even if I don't, you know what you're doing. So dear Christian, learn to be patient by teaching yourself to trust in our sovereign God's timing. What he says he has done, he will do without your help or mine. He can be trusted. Whatever he intends to do, he can do without your assistance. 
And sometimes he will wait until we are totally helpless, totally incapable of assisting him just so that he can prove he is trustworthy. God is present in pain. God reminds us, those of us who often forget who he is and of his promises. And God is capable of doing the impossible. The most impossible task that God has ever completed, has ever done, is in bringing your dead, sinful soul to life by trusting in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, the one who gave his sinless life as the Son of God on a cross and was raised again to make you right with God, if you don't know him yet, you've not yet tasted the the miracle of God's salvation by trusting in Jesus. You've not yet understood the most impossible thing that you could ever do for yourself has been done by God on your behalf through trusting Jesus. Come to know that miracle today introduce yourself be introduced to the the power of god and the miracle of salvation today turn from your sin trust in jesus give your life fully to him the son of god who makes promises and fulfills them without your help or mine let's pray together